this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. Sarah Forge and I are here to bring you the May podcast. Sarah will read the abstracts and I will return with some commentary. The first paper this month is a prospective randomized controlled trial on the efficacy of non-invasive ventilation in severe acute asthma by Gupta et al. Patients with severe acute asthma were randomized to receive either standard medical therapy or NIV in addition to medical therapy. The primary outcomes were improvement in FEV1, ICU stay, and hospital stay. The secondary outcomes were rate of improvement in respiratory rate, blood pH, PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, PaCO2, requirement for inhaled medications, and failure of primary therapy. 53 patients with severe acute asthma were enrolled. The baseline variables were similar in the two groups except for the mean duration of asthma, which was shorter in the standard medical therapy group. The median inspiratory and expiratory airway pressures applied were 12 centimeters water and 5 centimeters water, respectively. There was a significant improvement in the respiratory rate, FEV1, and PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, but no significant difference between the two groups. The numbers of patients who had greater than or equal to a 50% improvement in FEV1 at 1, 2, and 4 hours was non-significantly greater in the NIV arm. ICU and hospital stay was significantly shorter in the NIV group. The mean dose of inhaled bronchodilator was significantly less in the NIV group. There were four instances of standard medical therapy failure, and all those patients improved with NIV. Two patients in the NIV arm required invasive ventilation. There was no mortality in either of the arms. The authors concluded that, in patients with severe acute asthma, the addition of NIV to standard medical therapy probably accelerates the improvement in lung function, decreases the inhaled bronchodilator requirement, and shortens the ICU and hospital stay. But a larger study is required to settle this issue. Effects of imposed resistance on tidal volume with five neonatal nasal continuous positive airway pressure systems is by Cook et al. The authors compared the effect of resistive load on simulated tidal volume with five neonatal nasal CPAP systems, Fisher and Peichel nasal CPAP tubing with McKay servo eye ventilator in NIV CPAP mode, Cardinal Health Air Life nasal CPAP system, Fisher and Peichel nasal CPAP tubing with water seal pressure generator, AirLife infant nasal CPAP generator kit, and the Hamilton Medical Arabella fluidic nasal CPAP generator. The lung simulator settings were compliance 0.5 milliliters per centimeter of water, resistance 125 water per liter per second, sinusoidal patient effort range 6.5 to 26 centimeters of water, rise 25%, hold 0%, release 25%, respiratory rate at 65 breaths per minute. The authors compared the mean values from 10 breaths. The mean inspiratory pressure drop and tidal volume difference increased with tidal volume, respectively, from 0.32 centimeters of water to 1.73 centimeters of water, 
and from negative 0.04 milliliters to negative 0.4 milliliters. The flow opposition method for producing CPAP had the smallest pressure drop. At a tidal volume of less than or equal to 6 milliliters, the bubble nasal CPAP pressure drop was largest, whereas at a tidal volume of greater than or equal to 9 milliliters, the electronic nasal CPAP pressure drop was the largest. All systems except the ventilator did not have an average end expiratory pressure of the targeted 5 centimeters water. The authors conclude that the differences in these nasal CPAP systems correlate with the differences in unassisted tidal volume due to loading effects. The ventilator imposed the least load and the AirLife nasal CPAP system imposed the most. Next is the paper, Comparison Between Automatic Tube Compensation and Continuous Positive Airway Pressure During Spontaneous Breathing Trials by Figueroa Casas et al. The authors randomized 118 adults in a general ICU on mechanical ventilation for greater than 24 hours who were about to undergo a spontaneous breathing trial as part of an established respiratory therapist-driven weaning protocol. Patient received either 30 minutes of spontaneous breathing trial with an automatic tube compensation or CPAP with no pressure support. Predefined failure criteria were used for the spontaneous breathing trial. The primary outcome was duration of weaning. Other outcomes included unsuccessful extubation within 48 hours, first spontaneous breathing trial pass rate, and total duration of mechanical ventilation. There was a trend towards less failure of first spontaneous breathing trial with automatic tube compensation compared to CPAP, but no difference in duration of weaning, rate of unsuccessful extubation, or duration of mechanical ventilation. The authors concluded that, when applied as part of a respiratory therapist-driven weaning protocol in a general intensive care population, spontaneous breathing trials with automatic tube compensation were safe but did not hasten liberation from mechanical ventilation. Prevalence of Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease and Tobacco Use in Veterans at Boise Veterans Affairs Medical Center is by Thompson and St. Hilaire. The purpose of this study was to determine the prevalence of COPD in a typical population seeking care at a Veterans Affairs Medical Center, the impact of smoking, age, and sex on the prevalence of COPD in this population, and how often spirometry is done in patients at risk for COPD. The authors extracted data from the Veterans Integrated Service Network 20 Consumer Health Information and Performance Sets database on patients seen at the Boise Veterans Affairs Medical Center between January 1, 1999 and May 30, 2006. Approximately 9% of all patients and 14% of smokers were reported to have COPD. The odds of COPD in smokers after adjusting for age and sex was 3.18 times greater than in non-smokers. Males were 1.48 times more likely to have COPD than females, and there was an increasing risk of COPD with age. 39% of all veterans and 54% of those with COPD were active smokers. 
60% of the symptomatic smokers without a prior diagnosis of COPD were not evaluated with spirometry. The authors concluded that the prevalence of COPD in patients at the Boise Veterans Affairs Medical Center was consistent with that in other United States surveys. Although the underutilization of screening spirometry in those at risk for COPD may have caused underestimation of the prevalence, smoking, age, and male sex were identified as significant risk factors for COPD, and the prevalence of active smoking remains high in this population of veterans. Tanios et al. present can we identify patients at high risk for unplanned extubation, a large-scale multidisciplinary survey. The study objectives were to define high-risk patients for unplanned extubation and determine clinicians' beliefs on perceived risks for unplanned extubation with a web-based survey instrument. The authors surveyed critical care clinician members of the American Association for Respiratory Care, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Surveys were completed by 419 respiratory therapists, 870 critical care nurses, and 605 critical care physicians. The majority of respondents considered an outward migration of the endotracheal tube to represent a risk for unplanned extubation. Respondents considered the following as high risk for unplanned extubation, absence of physical restraints, a nurse-to-patient ratio of 1 to 3, trips out of the intensive care unit, light sedation, and bedside portable radiograph. In addition, most respondents considered accidental removal of the nasogastric tube or tugging on the endotracheal tube by the patient to be risk factors for unplanned extubation. The rank order of the perceived risks was related to the respondent's primary discipline. The authors identified perceived risk factors and defined near misses for unplanned extubation. These findings should inform strategies for prevention of unplanned extubation. Physiological Impact of the N95 Filtering Facepiece Respirator on Healthcare Workers is from Roberge et al. The objective of this study was to assess the physiological impact of N95 Filtering Facepiece Respirator, or FFR, on healthcare workers. Ten healthcare workers each conducted multiple one-hour treadmill walking sessions at 1.7 miles per hour and at 2.5 miles per hour while wearing FFR with exhalation valve, FFR without exhalation valve, and without FFR. They monitored heart rate, respiratory rate, tidal volume, minute volume, blood oxygen saturation, and transcutaneously measured PCO2. They also measured user comfort and exertion, FFR moisture retention, and the carbon dioxide and oxygen concentrations in the FFR's dead space. There were no significant differences between FFR and control in the physiological variables, exertion scores, or comfort scores. There was no significant difference in moisture retention between FFR with and without exhalation valve. Two subjects had peak PCO2 greater than or equal to 50 millimeters of mercury. The FFR with 
exhalation valve offered no benefit in physiological burden over the FFR without valve. The FFR dead space oxygen and carbon dioxide levels did not meet the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's ambient workplace standards. The authors concluded that, in healthy healthcare workers, FFR did not impose any important physiological burden during one hour of use at realistic clinical work rates, but the FFR dead space carbon dioxide and oxygen levels were significantly above and below, respectively, the ambient workplace standards, and elevated PCO2 is a possibility. Exhalation valve did not significantly ameliorate the FFR's PCO2 impact. Anders and Evans present Comparison of PubMed and Google Scholar Literature Searches The objective of this study was to compare PubMed and Google Scholar search results for clinical topics in respiratory care to that of a benchmark. The authors performed literature searches with PubMed and Google Scholar on three clinical topics. In PubMed, they used the Clinical Queries search filter. In Google Scholar, the search filter used was the Advanced Scholar search option. They used the reference list of a related Cochrane Collaboration evidence-based systematic review as the benchmark for each of the search results. PubMed and Google Scholar had similar recall for both overall search results and full-text results. PubMed had better precision than Google Scholar for both overall search results and full-text search results. These results suggest that PubMed searches with the Clinical Queries filter are more precise than with the Advanced Scholar search in Google Scholar for respiratory care topics. PubMed appears to be more practical to conduct efficient, valid searches for informing evidence-based patient care protocols, for guiding the care of individual patients, and for educational purposes. Echocardiography, 6-minute walk distance, and distant saturation product as predictors of pulmonary arterial hypertension in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is by Modrakamian et al. They sought to examine the performance of echocardiography, 6-minute walk distance, distant saturation product, and pulse oximetry in detecting underlying pulmonary arterial hypertension, or PAH, in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, IPF. 626 lung transplanted patients from February 1990 to December 2007 were considered. Subjects with pre-transplant diagnosis of IPF were evaluated. Based on findings in pre-transplant right heart catheterization, the presence or absence of PAH was recorded. Right ventricle systolic pressure, 6-minute walk distance, distant saturation product, and lowest SpO2 during the 6-minute walk test were compared in PAH and non-PAH groups. Receiver operating characteristic curves for each variable to assess prediction of PAH were constructed. 131 patients were transplanted due to IPF. Of these, 58 were eligible. PAH was diagnosed in 43% of the 58 eligible patients. The mean pulmonary arterial pressure in PAH patients, 
was 33 millimeters of mercury and 19 millimeters of mercury in non-PAH patients. The six-minute walk distance was 321 meters in the PAH group and 346 meters in the non-PAH group. Distance saturation product in PAH subjects was 272 meters percent and 286 meters percent in those with no PAH. The lowest SpO2 in the PAH and non-PAH groups were 84% and 82% respectively. The diagnostic accuracy in the echocardiography exceeded that of other variables. The authors concluded that right ventricle systolic pressure measured by echocardiography, 6-minute walk distance, distance saturation product, and SpO2 perform poorly in detecting PAH in IPF. Right ventricle systolic pressure performs better to predict PAH in IPF. Next, we have the paper, Relationship Between Functional Residual Capacity, Respiratory Compliance, and Oxygenation in Patients Ventilated After Cardiac Surgery, by Heinz et al. The objective of this study was to determine the relationship of measured absolute and relative predicted functional residual capacity, or FRC, values to oxygenation and respiratory system compliance, and identify variables that influence FRC in ventilated patients after cardiac surgery. The authors retrospectively analyzed data from 99 patients ventilated after cardiac surgery. Each patient underwent an alveolar recruitment maneuver and was then ventilated with a positive end expiratory pressure of 10 centimeters water and a tidal volume of 6 to 8 milliliters per kilogram of predicted body weight. Quasi-static two-point compliance of the respiratory system, FRC, PaO2, and FiO2 were measured. The FRC values were indexed to predicted FRC reference values from sitting and supine healthy volunteers. Correlation analyses revealed no meaningful association between FRC and the ratio of PaO2 to FiO2. There was a moderate association between absolute FRC and the respiratory system compliance. Indexing the absolute measured FRC values to the predicted FRC values did not improve the correlation. The authors concluded that indexing the measured FRC values to the predicted supine and sitting FRC values does not improve the association between the ratio of PaO2 to FiO2 and respiratory system compliance. In mechanically ventilated patients after cardiac surgery, FRC is influenced more by the ventilator settings than by physiologic variables. paper, Murugu et al. review the use of bronchoscopy during non-invasive ventilation. Diagnostic or therapeutic flexible bronchoscopy is often necessary in severely ill patients. These patients often have comorbidities that increase the risk of bronchoscopy-related complications. Non-invasive ventilation might decrease the risk of these complications in patients with severe refractory hypoxemia, post-operative respiratory distress, or severe emphysema, and in pediatric patients. Non-invasive ventilation may prevent hypoventilation in patients with obstructive sleep apnea and obesity hypoventilation syndrome who require bronchoscopy and may assist in the bronchoscopic evaluation of patients with expiratory central airway collapse. 
The authors describe the indications, contraindications, and technique of flexible bronchoscopy during non-invasive ventilation. Competencies needed by graduate respiratory therapists in 2015 and beyond is by Barnes et al. The American Association for Respiratory Care has established a task force to identify potential new roles and responsibilities of respiratory therapists in 2015 and beyond. The first task force conference confirmed that the healthcare system in the United States is on the verge of dramatic change, driven by the need to decrease costs and improve quality. Use of evidence-based protocols that follow a nationally accepted standard of practice and application of biomedical innovation continue to be important competency areas for respiratory therapists. The education needed by the workforce to assume the new responsibilities emerging as the healthcare system changes starts with a close look at the competencies that will be needed by graduate respiratory therapists upon entry into practice. The goal of the second task force conference was to identify specific competencies needed to assure safe and effective execution of respiratory therapists' roles and responsibilities in the future. Future specialty practice areas for experienced respiratory therapists are identified without defining specific competencies. The authors present the findings of the task force on the competencies needed by graduate respiratory therapists upon entry into practice in 2015. I'm back with some commentary on this month's papers. Non-invasive ventilation is a standard of care for patients with COPD exacerbations. However, its role in severe acute asthma is not well defined. Gupta et al. randomized patients with acute asthma to receive standard medical therapy with or without NIV. They found that the addition of NIV to standard medical therapy accelerated improvement in lung function, decreased the inhaled bronchodilator requirement, and shortened the ICU and hospital stay. However, it did not improve mortality, as there were no deaths in either group. As Scala points out in his editorial, additional studies are needed to determine when, where, and why a trial of NIV might be justified in severe acute asthma. Nasal CPAP can be administered to neonates using electronic feedback control, underwater seal, flow opposition, and flow opposition with fluidic flow reversal on expiration. Using a lung simulator, Cook et al. compared the effect of resistive load on simulated tidal volume with five neonatal nasal CPAP systems. They found that, in the simulation for infants less than 1,000 grams, there were no clinically meaningful differences between the CPAP systems. However, in the simulation for infants greater than 1,000 grams, the ventilator system may offer an advantage. As Black points out in his editorial, there are no major differences between the systems, and it remains to be seen whether the differences noted by Cook et al. have clinical relevance. All modern ventilators are able to apply tube compensation, in which the ventilator automatically compensates for the resistance through the endotracheal tube or tracheostomy tube. Figueroa Cassis et al. compared tube compensation to CPAP during spontaneous breathing trials in 118 adults. They found no difference in duration of weaning, rate of unsuccessful extubation, or duration of mechanical ventilation with the use of tube compensation. 
As Tanios and Epstein point out in their editorial, at present there is no convincing evidence that tube compensation is a superior mode for a spontaneous breathing trial. However, there may be some patients, such as those intubated with a small endotracheal tube, who might benefit from the use of tube compensation. Thompson and St. Hilaire report the prevalence of COPD and tobacco use in veterans at a Veterans Affairs Medical Center. They found that the prevalence of COPD was consistent with that in other surveys. Smoking, age, and male sex were identified as significant risk factors for COPD, and the prevalence of active smoking remains high in this population of veterans. An important finding of this study was that 60% of the symptomatic smokers without a prior diagnosis of COPD were not evaluated with spirometry. As Soho points out in his editorial, underutilization of spirometry is a gaping deficiency in the management of many patients with COPD. Risk factors and prevention strategies for unplanned extubation have not been fully explored. Tenios et al. conducted a multidisciplinary survey in an attempt to identify patients at high risk for unplanned extubation. Surveys were completed by respiratory therapists, critical care nurses, and critical care physicians. Perceived risk factors for unplanned extubation included absence of physical restraints, a nurse-patient ratio of 1 to 3, transport out of the intensive care unit, light sedation, bedside portable radiograph, accidental removal of the nasogastric tube, and tugging on the endotracheal tube by the patient. Whether or not strategies to address these perceived risks are clinically effective in reducing adverse events remains to be determined. Despite widespread use, there are few published data related to the physiologic impact of the use of an N95 filtering facepiece respirator on healthcare workers. Roberts et al. found that in healthy healthcare workers, an N95 mask did not impose any important physiological burden during one hour of use. However, the dead space carbon dioxide and oxygen levels were significantly above and below, respectively, the ambient workplace standards. The presence of an exhalation valve did not significantly ameliorate the impact on PCO2. Literature searches are essential to evidence-based respiratory care. Anders and Evans compared PubMed and Google Scholar search results for clinical topics in respiratory care. They found that PubMed was more practical to conduct efficient, valid searches for informing evidence-based patient care protocols, for guiding the care of individual patients, and for educational purposes. Modricamian et al. evaluated a number of potential predictors of pulmonary arterial hypertension in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. They found that right ventricle systolic pressure measured by echocardiography, six-minute walk test distance, distance saturation product, and SpO2 performed poorly in detecting pulmonary arterial hypertension in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Measurement of FRC has recently become commercially available during mechanical ventilation. Heinz et al. evaluated the relationship between FRC, respiratory compliance, and oxygenation in patients mechanically ventilated after cardiac surgery. In this patient population, the authors found that FRC was influenced more by the ventilator settings than by physiologic variables.
Margot et al. in their review described the indications, contraindications, and technique of flexible bronchoscopy during non-invasive ventilation. This is an area of likely increased use of NIV in the future. In their special article, Barnes et al. report the competencies needed by graduate respiratory therapists in 2015 and beyond. This is the report of a task force of the American Association for Respiratory Care to identify potential new roles and responsibilities of RTs in the future. Future specialty practice competencies for experienced RTs are identified. This paper is important as it helps to provide a roadmap for the future of the respiratory therapy profession. Calais et al. present a complicated case of ARDS with severe sepsis in which the ratio of VDVT was measured prior to, during, and after therapy with human recombinant activated protein C. In a second case report published this month, Gilbert et al. present a case of H1N1 influenza A viral infection complicated by pulmonary hemorrhage. The teaching case of the month by Hayes et al. reports the case of a patient with dyspnea following lung transplant. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.